You're listening to Campfire Conversations, brought to you by Three Rivers Land Trust. Connected to the land, committed to conservation. All right, folks, we are back for another episode, and I'm joined by two special guests today. Uh, one special guest is our in-house guest and uh, resident, Crystal. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, Katie. How are you? Good. So we're glad to have uh, Crystal with us, uh, but we also have a, another special guest, um, Mr. Scott from the Natural Heritage Program. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Yeah. So do you want to go ahead and give yourself an introduction, uh, introduce yourself and, and what you do? Yeah, sure. I'm uh, Scott Pullman. I work with the Natural Heritage Program, and we're a, a small state agency uh, we work across the state, and I say small, I just checked this morning, we have 11 full-time staff, so it's pretty small to cover the state. Um, we mostly provide information on uh, habitat across the state, you know, using information and database on rare species and high-quality habitats that we maintain uh, with the help of a lot of partners uh, that contribute information to this database. Um, and then we also administer some um, some some conservation or protection tools, the registry and dedication. And, and my job really is to administer those two uh, programs. Uh, registry, which is a voluntary agreement between uh, the landowners and managers and on our department. And then dedication, which is very similar to a conservation easement, actually. It's a, a conservation easement to the state maybe the best way to describe it. Okay, Doug. And before we get too far into that, you know, what about you and yourself personally? How'd you get into working with the nat- uh, Natural Heritage Program and, and your background? You know, just as a as a person, your personality, what you like to do, et cetera. Uh, so I uh, grew up in a family that included several hunters. So my background in conservation probably came from. Uh, the hunting part of it and also just uh, real fortunate as a kid when I um, the first house we lived in was next to a big wooded area and I just got to explore that uh, pretty much every day on my own and just um, that's where I just learned to feel comfortable so uh, probably between those two things is what really influenced me Uh, how I got to the natural heritage program I um, I worked for the um, I worked in the, in the mountains and in the more of an advocacy organiza- organization uh, in the early, well, mid-1990s. And then I did my graduate work at the University of Georgia. Um, and when I was coming out of graduate school, I worked on two projects. You know, we were trying to move back to North Carolina. I got to work um, on a research project up in the mountains. And I got to work actually as a contractor on a planning project uh, for the North Carolina Coastal Land Trust doing riparian protection plans uh, along the um, two Blackwater Rivers, South River and the um, Waccamaw River. And it was a new part of North Carolina for me and I was so excited. And when I was doing those plans, I was working uh, with the folks at the Natural Heritage Program a lot. So when a, a job came open, I applied for that job and was fortunate to, to get into the Natural Heritage Program. Good deal. So you've not looked back since, right? Uh, well, I did look back briefly. Uh, our program was sort of um, defunded several years ago. We, over a period of three years, our 
our, our funding was reduced by 70%. So we cut most of the staff and I was one of those staff. So I was an independent uh, contractor biologist for a, about 18 months and then I was fortunate to be rehired. Yeah, so I imagine that's kind of a, a hard hit to us in the conservation world when a program such as that is defunded or, or cut back. So, you know, Crystal, I know you've been here a while and have worked significantly with folks at the Natural Heritage Program. So you, do you want to talk about that and how important their role controls or influences what we do? Yeah, so I think Scott was probably one of the first people I met when I started working with the Land Trust um, through what was called the Greater Uori Conservation Partnership, um, which formed kind of right as I started. Um, And it was this great forum of people doing conservation work uh, in the greater Uwari region. Um, And so lots of biologists, botanists, um, folks that have a lot of information and knowledge uh, all getting together to share that with each other uh, towards the end goal of conservation. Um, So that was um, the organization still um, carries on, um, but that was first started when I started working with the Land Trust. Um, but yeah, uh, there was a, a kind of a rough patch uh, when Natural Heritage Program was largely defunded, and uh, it was also a time when it was hard to get acquisitions approved by Council of State. Um, so that was that was difficult across the board. Um, and you know, one of the things that I always think about with the natural heritage program is i think i don't know if it's still your motto but the science guiding conservation um which is really very true um the information that they provide us is critical for the grant funding that we're able to get to protect properties um you know, a lot of the scoring systems for the Land and Water Fund and several other trust funds are based off of um, knowing what's out there and, you know, having a team of, you know, highly trained biologists to go out and look for these species in natural communities is just invaluable um, to the work that we do. So, um, you know, that's that's pretty much what my experience has been and and personally it's been very rewarding because I get the opportunity to go out with a lot of these biologists when they go to our properties or the properties we're seeking to protect um so folks like Scott and um a lot of the other folks Laura Robinson that used to be the botanist and Bruce Sorry um and Mike Shafley and they've just got such a top-notch crew um, of folks that have worked and are working um, with the Natural Heritage Program to gather this information that's so useful for the work we do. Yeah, so essentially a team that goes out on a parcel of land and identifies everything. Is that an accurate assumption? Yeah, it's pretty cool. And we always, we had our big tree hike back in the spring and going out with somebody that you can point to anything and say, what is this? And they know it is pretty remarkable and people get excited about that yeah yeah you know just from out, that's not me i don't have that skill <laughs> you have some of that scott some of that. <laughs> what is your specialty scott do you have a thing that that you were um that you hone in on and you're kind of the expert in that field uh, well i'm i'm the jack of all trades here so i you know i specialize in administrative work i guess hey every, <laughs> every program needs one of those for sure but yeah, I get out. Um, we, we often get to review uh, management 
proposals uh, and do, you know, when we, when a project gets funded by the Land and Water Fund, often there's some inventory work that gets done. So I, I will get a chance to get out in the field, you know, either for some inventory work or to review a management proposal. Or, and we've also really started a, a monitoring program with some volunteers uh, recently that I've been able to get out with the volunteers too. We have some really, I mean, that's another thing, Crystal, we actually have some highly qualified volunteers now that are contributing a lot of data. Well, and Crystal contributes data too. Uh, but yeah, we, we, um, we do pull uh, information from a, a wide range of partners, you know, consultants and academic researchers, um, some of these volunteers, including some of our re retired biologists um, and um, state agency partners and federal agency partners, all these folks are contributing information. And then we, um, like Crystal says, you know, our role really is to make that information available to help, help you know, try to um, uh, get conservation in places where it will have the, the most impact, the most positive impact. Yeah, so, you know, I think it potentially a good way to summarize that is you know your folks are in the you know on the ground looking at a parcel of land to see what's there and then from that you guys compile it and then that way it's in a database or whatever it may be so that way when organizations like us are looking at projects to potentially do the stuff that you guys find directly correlates to projects of ours that may or may not get funded or projects that may or may not be more high priority um, to seek to get completed yeah. Yeah, good deal. So how does that work? Like what's the what's the background behind it in regards to the surveys that you guys are doing for rare plant and animal communities? Is it, you know, literally you just show up and you're walking around or is there like structured protocol that you guys have to follow um, to help get that data across the state or how, you know, how's that work? Well, uh, first of all, we have to have landowner permission before we uh, enter onto a property. But um there are a couple of different ways. Like I said, we get a lot of information from other sources. People contribute information, and we're actually starting to tap into, you know, even citizen science now. We're collecting some records from eBird and iNaturalist a little bit. So, um, but um, if we're doing an active inventory, it, it sort of depends. We were doing county inventories for a while, trying to complete sort of a uh, a summary of the you know important parts of a county. Um, so we we have I think 97 of the counties done, and I shouldn't throw that out there without. Uh, when I say that, I should I should be able to say which three counties are done. But I can't do that right now. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> I'd have to look that up. Uh, but but um, so we used to do county inventories. And again, we'd still work with um, folks who knew the county, you know, the naturalists and, you know, folks like Crystal who knew the county and say, are there places that you've heard about or know about that we should go take a look at and, and work out, you know, permission with the landowner? Um, sometimes it's a little more opportunistic, you know, that, you know, someone will reach out to, to Crystal or, you know, someone else in the conservation community and say, you know, I have a property that I, I'm, I'm interested in, you know, maybe um, conserving and could you help us figure out, you know, how we might conserve it. And so we'll get a chance to maybe do inventory on a property then. Sometimes, and this is probably one of the most interesting things to me is that there are some um, foresters who are, you know, on the ground and are encountering some areas, um, you know, on a property where they're working with the client and, uh, you know, they're making a management plan 
and they'll find something that to them looks either uh, interesting or they just realize it's you know high quality you know really nice mature forest or something and 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 they'll contact us and you know they'll tell a landowner of course and they'll contact us and they say you think you know this is really this seems really interesting to me do you think you'd be interested in working out an agreement with the land or you know with the um, with the natural heritage program or even you know maybe working with the land trust to see if we could get it conserved in some way so we had you know we have a few different ways that we approach a project or a project is brought to us maybe is a better way to say it and I think um, it's good to note too that when applications are submitted to the land and water fund um, if they're on properties that have not been inventoried there's a lot of opportunity there as well um, that the natural heritage program will send out field staff uh, to inventory those properties, which gives us a better chance of knowing what's out there and, you know, helps our scores for those applications if something is found. That's right. Our whole business model has changed a little bit, you know, with the, you know, more integration into the, the way the Land and Water Fund works, you know, and we're not doing county inventories right now. And our biologists are pretty busy from March to June almost trying to visit as many of the application projects as we can to make sure that we're not missing information that would help, you know, an application score at its highest. And I think that's a good point, which we've talked about a little bit on the podcast before, that there used to be a separate Natural Heritage Trust Fund um, back when the Clean Water Management Trust Fund, um, before it was the Land and Water Fund, um, there was a separate pot of money just for state agencies, just for protecting natural areas, um, which was funding that the land trust was not able to access. So. Um, you know, it was unfortunate that that trust fund went away, um, but its duties were incorporated into the land and water fund, and that allowed us to apply for funding to protect some areas that maybe weren't just water quality focused, but were significant natural areas. That's um, one of the first projects we did under that, uh, the kind of auspices of that new, um, newly revised, you know, trust funds guidelines was Boone Chesson's property, um, which did didn't have exceptional water quality characteristics, but had a really great natural heritage significance. So what would be some of those other significant natural heritage areas that would be very beneficial or rank high on a project, you know, in terms of, you know, maybe that property doesn't have that water quality value like you're talking about, but, you know, you and I know that there's so many other plant communities or whatever that is very, very important, um, for protecting so do you either of you guys have any examples of those that that you've seen that like when you see that you're like oh man we really need to protect those i mean i know you've mentioned the flat rock might be an example of you know one of those areas yeah so i think there's a lot of different ones um but it's more kind of looking at plant and you know natural communities rather than just wetlands and floodplain mm-hmm. i think is is really the significant difference um so we're talking about longleaf forests we're talking about dry oak hickory forest you know, we're just we're talking about you know these natural communities as opposed to just areas that might be protecting water quality yeah so what are maybe some of those really good success stories that either of you guys have seen over time, you know, something that 
automatically rings a bell it's like oh my goodness i'm so glad the natural heritage program come out and we were able to find either a specific species or um, something in that regard uh you know just unique and and really significant that maybe would have been missed otherwise well i mean it's an ongoing uh effort but there are some projects that i think um because I was, I cheated, I guess. I looked ahead of time to think about this question. Um, there are some projects that maybe happened because we had that information at hand. So uh, to me, a good example is the Eastwood Preserve, um, mm. which is in Moore County. It's a plant conservation program preserve. And we um, knew there was um, a lot of ecological significance tied to um, that area. And in particular, there is a, a population of, of Sandhills lily, Lilium parophyllum. And we were able to, you know, work with partners again to try to, you know, work with the landowners there to see if we could, you know, start to establish a preserve. And that preserve has grown from the original, you know, one parcel out and I should have looked to see, but it's a pretty substantial preserve now based, you know, on protecting sort of the, the you know, rare species associated with that, uh, that landscape. As a streamhead bacosin, uh, which you know, as again, it's a kind of fire-dependent um, habitat, wants to stay open. You know, so it was the the plant itself was hanging on in a transmission line right of way that was being maintained through mowing. And, and since since the plant conservation, since the plant conservation program, sorry, I'm getting these things confused. Since the plant conservation program has acquired that property. Um, they have been able to, you know, try to open up the habitat on the adjacent area to the transmission line right of way and establish the population away from the transmission line. So sort of helping make sure it remains viable over time. You know, if something did happen to the population on the right of way, the plants to the, you know, outside of that right of way would still persist. So that to me is a, an example, but I can think of others, that, you know, that are pretty exciting in the landscape as well. Yeah, I always think that's interesting. I think that's a good sidebar. There are so many relic plant communities that are hanging on along right-of-ways, power line right-of-ways, or whatever it may be, just because they have been maintained open for many, many years, whereas the areas beside of those may have succeeded into tree cover and then suppressed a lot of those really, really important plant communities. So, you know, I think that's a big misconception a lot of folks may have, and, you know, I'm sure I had this misconception too. Originally, you think a power line right away you know there's nothing there it's junk but in reality some of the most remarkable plant communities are in those right-of-ways just because they have been maintained through mowing or herbicide application over many years yeah that mowing we think is probably a little more beneficial and the jury may still be out on some of those herbicide applications we're, we're seeing a shift maybe in some of those plant communities uh but but yeah i again the jury is still out on this so and this is a timely discussion um as scott and i were talking about before we 
started recording, uh, the Land and Water Fund is actually meeting. They met yesterday, their acquisition committee, and they're meeting today, their board, to make decisions. And we have an addition to Eastwood under consideration, um, 55 acres that will connect two disjunct parcels. Um, this is in Moore County, so this was not one of our original counties, um, but since we merged with the Sand Hills Area Land Trust, we've picked that up. And actually, one of the first projects I closed after we started working in the Sand Hills was a 15 acre addition to Eastwood. So um, now we've got another one up for consideration and should find out probably by five o'clock today whether that's funded or not. Yeah, it might be later. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. I think the committee is or the board isn't meeting until 3.30 to start that discussion. So, but yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward, whatever time it is, I'm looking forward to seeing it. But as far as that project goes, one thing to, to note about that project in the way that it connects those two parcels is the fire is a really important tool to manage these habitats. So having you know that connectivity um, uh, and you know sort of growing that preserve out is really important. Uh, uh, so we're really you know really supportive of of that sort of effort to sort of grow out these preserves and connect them and make sure that we can maintain them. Yeah, good stuff. So um, just looking through y'all's website. I saw that y'all have registered heritage areas. So can you discuss that and, and what a registered heritage area is? Uh, yeah, sure. Happy to. The um, registry program is a voluntary agreement between our department and the landowners um, of, a, of a natural heritage area. So it's an area that's recognized um, between both parties as having some ecological significance, you know, presence of a rare species or high quality habitat. Uh, and and it's a it's voluntary and non-binding, but it's a good way to establish um, that relationship and sort of help landowners in particular understand the importance of of a site. And we offer management recommendations. Um, there's a little bit of actual protection in there from um, uh, it's some regulatory protection from sewer lines, new sewer lines. Uh, but it really is, you know, in some ways, it's a, you know, what we hope is a, um, a, a step toward a, a long-term protection, something like a conservation easement, because it's voluntary and non-binding, and it actually lapses with a change in ownership. So unlike a conservation easement, which is perpetual and runs with the land, the registry agreement will automatically lapse when, you know, the land changes hands. Um, we do use the registry agreements a lot on federal land. And, and some private landowners also really like to register their land as well. Um, so uh, some really interesting registries on the, in the Uwaris on both the uh, National Forest and then also the PD River National Wildlife Refuge. We have some really exciting places there that are, are registered. And because those lands aren't gonna change hands, those registry agreements should be as close to permanent as we can get on those federal lands. Yeah. So what would be a benefit, you know, if, if we have a listener listening, what would be a benefit for them to reach out to you guys um, about potentially registering their own piece of piece of property? Um, well, we use it to track um, elements of biodiversity, like rare species or high quality habitats. And we offer management recommendations. Um, trying to think if there's any other um, 
just the recognition maybe, I don't know, that it is someplace that's really important for the you know people of North Carolina, that there is something on their property that is important. Yeah, I think that's a good badge for any landowner to have, you know, just to recognize what's there and, you know, a pat on the back to say, hey, you're doing the right thing and you're promoting those natural communities that are so important. Yeah. So what about, um, I think this whole conversation with Scott coming on on the podcast come from a project that you guys were working on. Is that right? A Pocosum project or something along those lines? (laughs) Oh, well, we reached out to Scott because we had some some landowners interested in protecting a Pocosum. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's a kind of a new area for us um, working in sort of the Sand Hills and and more eastern counties of our region, um, looking at what's called a Carolina Bay or a Pocosin. Um, You've got some some unique habitat types that um, may have some additional funding opportunities because of what they are. Um, but yeah, we were we were kind of reaching out to Scott to see, you know, as we oftentimes do um, when we're looking at a project, you know, what's 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 the natural heritage potential of this tract? I mean, is it is it something that we really need to work to protect or, you know, is it is it something that um, is is significant or, or not really? Yes, I have to say, I don't remember the details of the project, but we are really interested in these areas for a couple of reasons. Um, one of the projects that I'm working on is um, it's tied to the peat soils and Pocosins are sort of a, you know, a, a subset of the larger group of peat lands uh, that we have in North Carolina. They're some of the largest Pocosins are these usually these extensive areas with peat soils, sometimes several feet thick. Um, and they store a lot of carbon. That's the, the you know, one of the really important uh, benefits of these areas. And we, we, we're trying to make sure that they sort of remain because um, if you remove the water from some of these areas, they're much more susceptible to fire. And so if you burn up these organic soils, they're, they're going to release a lot of that carbon they've stored. And that's, you know, thousands of years of carbon storage that we are losing then so we're really interested in in some of these landscapes that have these peat soils on them in addition to the habitat benefits they provide usually yeah i know i can't remember the details of that specific project crystal i'm sorry (laughs) oh no you're fine (laughs) well it was just a an interested landowner that we were uh reached that had reached out to us and we were trying to explore the conservation opportunities for it ah okay okay yeah, I know working for the Forest Service previously, you know, they would have a lot of those areas that would, during drought years, burn. And it was always a challenge, you know, working in those coastal areas because of the soils there to extinguish those fires. And essentially, you know, if, if you have a wildfire in, in the Piedmont or in the mountains, it's much different. You can plow a dozer line around it and it'll stop. But because those peat soils were so deep you were unable to do that because your you know your dozer would get stuck so essentially they would set up sprinklers over miles and miles and miles and just pump water into those areas to try to contain the fire and it would last several several months you know i think evans road fire was a big one um uh, several years ago and uh, just something that's super hard to contain because of the soils are so deep and once if they do go into a drought year and you don't have that water it's super difficult to contain but and I think I think I read a stat last night looking at it. North Carolina has more um, Pocosins than any. I think it's like seventy five percent of the Pocosins are all in North Carolina. So I thought that was pretty interesting. I don't know if that's true or not, but 
<laughs> I think that's pretty close to accurate, actually. Yeah, that particular type of habitat. Yeah. You have the world's majority of them. Okay. So what about maybe some of y'all's favorite projects that you've seen over time? Either, you know, maybe, Scott, one of your favorite um, natural heritage, heritage area that you guys have helped manage or maybe some of those registered areas that you think are just super cool and super significant? Um, gosh, how do you pick a favorite? Uh, or top three, whatever's <laughs> easiest. Top three. I will say um, a few years ago, uh, I got to, you know, work on the, some of the Uari projects on the Uari River, and that is one of my favorites. It's one of my favorite places to paddle too. So, I think um, you came out on one of our field trips and brought your kids. I we know, had a paddle trip there. Yeah, that was a, that was a good day. So, um, so I really am, uh, uh, you know, and so I, I shouldn't. You, you asked me what my specialty was, and in my background, my training actually, I I was an aquatic ecologist at one time, so I have great See, appreciation. You were holding out on me. You said that you yeah, said there wasn't. I guess, one. Like, well, I don't do much actual, you know, aquatic ecology work now. I do mostly protection work. But yeah, so um, I do love, I do love all the aquatic systems. Uwaris is a, in particular, a really important place, you know, globally for aquatic systems. And Lots so, of rare mussels. Lots of rare mussels, yeah. So um, really, you know, appreciate not just the systems there, but also the fact that I can get out and paddle on those places. And it's really, you know, one of the one of my favorite paddles in North Carolina. So, so yeah, that's one of my favorites for you know a couple of reasons, I think. What about you, Crystal? Uh, do you, do you the, have a the project that I always think of? And this was back when the Natural Heritage Trust Fund was still the Natural Heritage Trust Fund. Um, was when we protected what we call the Nichols property mm -hmm. or the Arnett Branch Longleaf Pine Forest, um, which was a partnership project with the zoo. Um, the North Carolina Zoo owns that site now, but it's uh, it's a track that's in Montgomery County, so it's Piedmont Longleaf. Um, a lot of people don't think there are Longleaf in the Piedmont, but there are. Um, um, this tract has some 300-year-old longleaf. It's got, the tract's about 116 acres, and about 85 or so of those are, are these older longleaf. Um, it's just a really, really cool project. Um, it had been identified as a natural area before we even started working on it by the Heritage Program because you can see it from the road. Um, it's pretty obvious um, what it is what it is, and uh, because of that, we were able to get funding from the Natural Heritage Trust Fund for the zoo to acquire that tract. Um, and that was during the, the upheaval time we were talking about when they were cutting a lot of those budgets. And even though we had funding dedicated, we couldn't get it approved by Council of State uh, for a number of months. Um, so the land trust actually bought that tract and then transferred it to the zoo when the funding finally came through. Um, but uh, yeah, that's definitely one of my favorite places. And um, it is the natural community there. There's not really a specific rare species unless you count longleaf pine. Um, but they've been doing some burning and opening the understory since they owned it. And now there's yellow fringed orchids and that's some awesome. other cool stuff that's popped up there. Uh, Carolina lilies and things like that. So uh, yeah, I think that place has some pretty amazing potential and definitely an important site that wouldn't have been conserved if somebody at the Natural Heritage Program didn't look up from their car on their drive from Troy to Ashboro one day and say, hey, that place looks pretty cool. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, that it's so wild. You and I were driving through there, I guess, last week, and you pointed it out. And, you know, think how many people drive 134 every single day, and they have no idea that that is sitting there. And, you know, just to the, the blind eye passerby, if that was to be harvested like any other stand in Montgomery County, a lawbally stand, nobody would bat an eye. You know yep. what I mean? Yep. It's just, it's wild to see that, yes, we have these significant resources, but so many folks are just unaware of it yeah and when we got that property appraised we did both the land appraisal and the timber appraisal and the timber was worth about twice what the land was worth gosh wow so it's all you know it is really neat to see that it is conserved and it's not it wasn't just passed off and say yeah you know we're going to get top dollar for that timber and and be done with it and and that took a landowner who was interested in what they had and willing to work with us to see it protected which is really the story for just about every property we do see protected yeah uh, we were talking about earlier how conservation work doesn't happen quickly um so we have to we have to have landowners that believe in what we do um even when we are purchasing land when it's not a an easement but an acquisition it's not something that's going to happen next week um you know very rarely are we able to act within you know even a year's time frame so um having landowners that are are aware of what they have and interested in seeing it protected is pretty key to to being able to make that happen yeah i kind of think that's the story to everything we do you know we're not knocking on people's doors to say hey do you want to conserve your land because one we don't have the time to do that but two it takes that person who wants to do something and, and is really they value their land like boone chesson you know we heard him speak at a meeting of i don't know maybe a hundred landowners last week and you can tell in his voice and the things that he sa- that he is saying that he loves that land more than anything and he's put so much into it over time so for him the right step was to have it conserved um that way it, it remains the way it is or perpetuates that plant community over time and it's amazing to me that people who have an interest in conservation know that they have these significant areas um, and I don't know if this particular landowner had ever been contacted by the Natural Heritage Program but you know he knew he had Longleaf um, and he went to a meeting about Longleaf to you know once inheriting the property to see what to do to manage it and actually he met Boone at that meeting and Boone gave him my phone number and that's how it all got started so um, yeah now, now it's conserved that's right I think we're about to get booted off. We got 18 seconds left, I, I think. So uh, we'll uh, start a new meeting and send you a link, Scott. All right? Okay. Thanks. Right. The gunsmithing program at Montgomery Community College is one of only a handful of schools in the United States focusing on this discipline. The curriculum is designed to prepare students for existing jobs within the firearms industry, with training ranging from basic diagnostics and repair to true custom builds. Courses are available for every interest and level of commitment, from a three-day class to the full two-year degree program. Gunsmithing is considered one of MCC's Heritage Crafts programs. Other specialty programs include taxidermy, hunting and shooting sports management, forest management technology, and pottery. Visit montgomery.edu to see course descriptions and explore the exciting world of gunsmithing for yourself. Hey guys, we're going to take a quick break from the show to talk about one of our sponsors, Backcountry and Beyond. You can visit Backcountry and Beyond at 322 South Main Street in Salisbury, North Carolina. They've got a lot of awesome things right now. They've got a new restock of the Meat Church seasonings. Um, They've got their Traeger grills that everybody knows and loves. And if you get your grill from Backcountry and Beyond, 
they have a free setup assembly and delivery to Salisbury, North Carolina and the surrounding areas. So you can get hooked up with a nice grill and you can get those seasonings while you're there too. Also, they've got that new Nordic collection from Yeti. It's highly sought after and they've got it in stock. So be sure to pop on down there and get all of your outdoor needs. Or if you can't make it down to Salisbury, you can shop online at www.backcountryandbeyond.com. So I know uh, while we were originally discussing this podcast, Crystal, you said if you didn't work for the land trust, (laughs) where would you work? I said I would work for the Natural Heritage Program. (laughs) Uh, Excellent. (laughs) See, he's got likes that. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. (laughs) That's all right. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's a very cool part of my job getting to even my existing job getting to go out and look for neat species i mean i've done a variety of different wildlife surveys from bog turtles to mussels to electroshocking fish to snorkeling for hellbenders and everything in between you're like smiling (laughs) your smile is touching both ears right now just when you're talking about it i mean it's just it's really fun stuff and uh i think people you know it does sound like one of the most awesome jobs ever to get paid to walk through the woods and look for cool stuff um but it's also pretty challenging um i went one time um i did a salamander survey at night i had worked all day i did a salamander survey at night until about three o'clock in the morning and then I got up again at five and went to the PD Wildlife Refuge and did a waterfowl survey Mm -hmm. and followed that by going to visit a couple bald eagle nests and it was an awesome day but it was totally exhausting yeah um so you know a lot of these wildlife biologists and, and natural heritage biologists they do have the coolest jobs but it's also extremely challenging i mean they're going in you know pocosins they're going in bogs where you know the creature from the black lagoon is known to be inhabiting and um mosquitoes and water moccasins and all that good stuff and and you're getting up early or you're staying up late um it's uh it's just it's cool stuff so you say it's hard but uh you want to tell your bog turtle story right wasn't you like searching for bog turtles and you're just like picking them up like you know they were candy well the first time i went to look for bog turtle well actually it's the only time i've been to look for bog turtles and yeah i was uh i was out there with uh some wildlife commission biologists and uh some of them especially there were a couple kind of relatively new field techs who were who were doing the work and um they were kind of struggling to find them and i was just i I picked up i found four the first day crystal's Um, pulling them out behind their ears you know like a quarter of magic trick <laughs> it's just uh Ooh, luck, look, I found l- one. luck of the draw <laughs> and they are one of our more charismatic rare species too. oh they're adorable yeah definitely so what are you what wow, are, it's a good day crystal i don't get too many of those <laughs> yeah well i've got to do a lot of good stuff and and you get the opportunity to learn from the people that are carrying out this work um which helps me do my job better yeah do you have any of those good stories, Scott, of uh, inventories that went really well or, or really bad or anything in between? Oh, um, uh, oh gosh. <laughs> well, yeah, probably. Which ones are appropriate <laughs> for the for the viewing public? Uh, well, I, I had to, I had to call it a day. One day, you know, it was going to be. It's so one of the challenges also is you have to go when you you know, when things are flowering or when you're going to see things, but sometimes you also have to, 
err on the side of caution. So yeah, there was one day where it was supposed to be 100 degrees or whatever, and I needed to get out to a site. So my strategy was to get out as early as possible. So yeah, I was up, you know, out before it got light. And I, there's a swamp, which is one of my actual favorite habitats, but yeah, it's a little risky. And there were cypress knees sticking up and I was going through there, trying to be careful not to touch everything because there's so much poison ivy. And I was kind of stumbling around and it was starting to get warm and, um, uh, raccoon came out and stumbled around like right in front of me and just clearly there was something wrong and that is the day that i that i said you know what i can come back tomorrow (laughs) (laughs) i didn't know where that story was going trying to tell me something right now that i don't need to be out here i did go back the next well it was the next couple of days and i had to go back with Alvin Braswell, who's the former curator of herpetology at the museum, and Alvin had been to the same site roughly the same around the same time that I was there, and the same the same day where I saw no cotton mouse, Alvin saw ten or something like that, you know, and and he's like, "Well, you want to go see one?" And I was like, "Yeah, sure." And you know, within five minutes, he he had one, and I'm just I. I I'm so appreciative of people like Alvin who can, have, you know, who have developed that eye over time. Um, anyway, yeah, so I have stories like that. But I also wanted to say that I, when I did work for the North Carolina Coastal Land Trust, there is something that I don't get to do very often that Crystal does get to do. Uh, and that is to go out with people on their property because people, and most people, love their property. I mean, just have they just love it. and. Um, it's just fun to go out with someone who has that level of appreciation of their land. And, you know, it's it's almost contagious. You know, you get excited too sometimes with folks who, you know, have this property and they've been, you know, trying to take care of it and do their served in the future. And it is, that is also a really good day. So, um, so that I will say, I, I don't get to do that very much. So I, you know, uh, and also the other part about biologists, um, some of the days that are fun are also followed by uh, two to three days of sitting in an office, looking at a computer screen to get data in and write reports and do all the other work. And in fact, one of our biologists who's retired used to joke around that he doesn't actually get paid to go out in the woods he gets paid to sit in the chair and look at a computer screen because he would do the woods part for free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that. I know that was a learning curve for me. When I was working on my master's, we were doing plant surveys. And at the end of the field season, we would have a stack that was several feet tall. And we would have to go through and enter all those plant species in Excel. And you don't realize how long that takes, but it's, a, it's an endeavor. So I definitely uh, feel y'all's pain in that regard. Well, some of our biologists have created shortcuts. You know, they're they're walking around with an Excel spreadsheet and they're collecting information in a format that's going to be. So I'm, you know, we have tried to embrace technology to help us, you know, shorten the time frame for some of these things. Now it's pretty impressive what what tools we have now. I, you know, as opposed to 20 years ago when I started. Maybe what are some of those big innovations in the last few years that's made it super conducive to you guys to carry out your work? 
Oh, well, <laughs> when the natural age program, which is going on 40 years, now I'm going to, now I should remember this. Anyway, yeah, the natural heritage program dates back to a time when there were punch cards, you know, when the computers used punch cards and things like that. So, um, and then we actually have a few around here just for, you know, archive purposes, just because they're entertaining to see. But um, uh, the ability to, you know, to, to use GIS, to use GPS, um, yeah, all the mapping software for sure helps us a lot because we used to put dots on a topo quads yeah, right. you know, and draw on them. And we still have some of those in the office as well, again, for, you know, archive purposes, just because we like to see where we've come from. But, you know, the ability to, you know, collect information now and put it into a really large database and, you know, you know, sort of do the analysis and provide information to people in a way that tells the best story. So uh, I was just looking because I didn't know what projects we'd ask about. I was looking at, for, at Suther Prairie, which I can't remember is. Mm-hmm. Barris is in your area. Yeah, right? we did help with Suther. Yep. Yeah, which um, I was curious because it has some really rare species on it. Um, I could I just looked and just to see like of the species that are there, where else are they known from? And there are two species that are known from Suther Prairie that aren't known from anywhere else in North Carolina. They're the only places we know they exist in North Carolina. So, um, so we can, you know, it's, it's kind of fun to, you know, sort of look at the data and sort of figure out, you know, how to tell the story about a place, you know, and say, well, well, this is why this is important, you know, or something like that. So. Yeah. And I'll say a couple of follow-up things to that. Um, you know, makes me feel really old but when I started with the land trust we didn't even have a handheld GPS I mean I didn't have an iPhone I was printing out map quest directions to get places yeah. I was walking through the woods with you know whoever would volunteer to go with me and say well which way do you think north is like <laughs> <laughs> I mean it was it was a different time and you know now we have a Venza I can tell you exactly where I am at any given point on any property and I can take pictures and waypoints and it's funny um Two of our staff members went to Land Trust Rally last week and they were saying, oh, this new app will do a baseline inventory for you. All you have to do is take the pictures and it puts it in maps and puts it in in PowerPoint for you. And I was like, you know, I, I've spent years of my life doing that. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> um, It's pretty, pretty remarkable. So definitely makes our job easier, too. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, we definitely appreciate you and, and what you and, and your program does. Um, it definitely helps us out at the Land Trust. But any other things that you want to add or, or inform listeners on about you guys and what you do? Um, well, I I don't know. and I, I'm not the person to talk about it, but Mike Safely in our program is our community ecologist. And so people understand rare species pretty well, but sometimes the natural communities aren't well understood and I'm not sure I'm the best person to explain them but you know what we're trying to do is identify the the plant communities um, that are really good examples and we we sort of use for all of our elements whether they're rare species or natural communities um, we use three factors to sort of uh, talk about how good they are um, in terms of how viable they are really and that's uh, size, so either the size of the population of a rare species or the size of a natural community in terms of just overall area. Um, condition, you know, what, what 
what you know if it's a natural community does it have all the plants that you'd expect to be there um, or does it have invasive species or you know what if it's in forest how mature it is uh, and then landscape context so um, and, and that's true for either rare species populations or natural communities uh, and the natural communities we sort of use as a coarse filter so you know you you mentioned that it seems like we go out and we identify everything on a property but we really don't there are so many things that we don't really know much about microorganisms and you know a lot of insects um, we're not capturing all that information but we're we're hoping that really good examples of what we think are natural habitats are capturing many of those things we don't know much about uh, and we're gonna you know sort of maintain them into the future so um, so we do use natural communities as a as a as a way of trying to capture as much of our you know biodiversity as we can and and so I I know they're often maybe misunderstood or you know we focus on the rare sometimes but you know quality is an important component of what we do as well we really try to look for places that are in good condition or have high integrities and we think they're going to be the places that are viable into the future so so um, we do we do value quality. Um, we do, you know sometimes that's kind of almost a you know a um, something that we we put into our data as well. So um, maybe that's something I maybe would say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's you and I kind of hit on that uh, last week too, in just a conversation that we were having. It it's so difficult even when you have all these species experts or area experts looking at something. Sometimes it's just nearly impossible to identify everything. And, and there's so many things that we as scientists and biologists, we still don't even understand yet about relationships that are going on between either insects or plants or, you know, still every day we are, as a community, we're identifying new species to science. So, you know, it's, it's obviously we can't know how those interactions yet if there's still species that we don't even know. So I think that's a good point of, you know, it's not always about a single species, but what is important is maybe perpetuating that significant community in hopes that as a catch-all, we can also protect all those other things that we might not even understand yet. But. Oh, and I have one other thing. Um, you know, we're really excited about the work the land trust does to protect natural areas, but um, I am also really appreciative of the work that you do for, you know, working farms and forests as well. Um, that was one of the things that came out of our conference last, well, two weeks ago, you know, just the, that's sort of the, the matrix of, of, you know, rural lands that supports, you know, these high quality habitats and, you know, also provides other services as well, food and fiber. But, um, but yeah, those are also, you know, we, we definitely want you to focus on natural areas, but we also appreciate the work that you do to protect farms and forests as well. Yeah, it all ties in together, right? Any any kind of connectivity we can have to yeah. um, perpetuate that is, is definitely a good thing. Mm -hmm. yep. Any last uh, parting remarks, Crystal? No, um, I guess the only other thing I was thinking about, too, is just the, the significance of the Natural Heritage Program as this repository of information yeah. um, that we have GIS files that show us. Um, and there's sensitive data, so um, 
the Natural Heritage Program has a website you have to have a registration for, and fortunately they make that information available for free for nonprofits doing conservation work. But just the amount of time it takes to compile all that information, as you were talking about before, um, the stacks of paperwork and, and keeping all of that geo-referenced. And yeah. so, so we have the ability to look those kinds of things up. Um, is is a huge tool in our toolbox and we can build on that over time you know we can we can see maybe what areas or what species occurrences occurred in a particular area in previous years and if you know then we can go back and say well you know what's that population doing is it still there is it growing is it gone and then hopefully influence management from there right and also i was wrong the natural aid program is approaching 50 years now that I think about it. Wow. Yeah, I think it's in, in four years, we talked about our next conference, we'd also celebrate our 50th anniversary, so. Good deal. It's a great program. Yeah. yeah well, thanks, thank you. All right, well, we sure do appreciate your time, Scott, and, and sharing information with the listeners. And uh, if folks have questions, reach out to Scott, but uh, also they have a, a website too that uh, lists some of the information. If you're interested in, in, in how to get more information there, but. Until next time. Thanks, Scott. If you like the show and would like the episodes to keep coming, you should know that our podcast is just one of the tools that we use at Three Rivers Land Trust to further our conservation mission. Our number one priority and purpose is to conserve land and natural resources for future generations and to be a voice for wildlife and to ensure wildlife populations have habitat forever here in North Carolina. This podcast is just a byproduct to further that mission. You can visit our website at trlt.org to join us in this conservation mission.